You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Amy Pershing. Amy is an anti-diet therapist and binge eating disorder pioneer and expert. Amy is also the clinical director of the Center for Eating Disorders in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In 1993, she blazed the trail for treating binge eating disorder when she developed BodyWise, which is a comprehensive treatment program to support those with BED. In today's episode, we discuss Amy's experience with BED and break down some of the major misconceptions of the disorder and how you can approach healing. Amy brings so much wisdom and expertise on this subject in this episode today, and I know you are absolutely going to love it. So enjoy. Hi, Amy. How are you today? Hi, Meg. I'm doing well. Delighted to be here with you. Oh, I'm so delighted to have you as well. Coming in from Ann Arbor, how is it over there today? It is stunning here, actually. We have one of the most beautiful falls I've seen in a long time. So as I'm speaking with you, I have a backdrop of beautiful trees and it's lovely to be here. A lot of snow on the way, but we know that. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I've been loving every moment of the fall. I feel like with every year that goes by, I savor the leaves changing and I need to get every second I can outside because I want to cherish all the beautiful colors. How do you feel about it? Absolutely. hundred percent agree. It's like storing that up so that we can get through the next few months, which are also beautiful, but only from indoors, really. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So funny. I love fall, but I definitely know what's coming. And so there's a part of me that's like scheduling all my fun fall activities outdoors because I'm preparing for a few weekends inside for sure. (laughs) Not alone there. (laughs) Oh, good. I I feel better. Thank you for that. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, We have so much to talk about today, specifically about binge eating disorder. You have a very impressive career that works with eating disorders, but also specifically on binge eating disorder. And I wanted to hear about your story and your journey into becoming a therapist with this focus. I'd love to hear about that. Sure. I actually started because I went to seek therapy when I was in college. And I had binge eating disorder, but that wasn't a diagnosis then. And so I was diagnosed as a failed bulimic. And they, and I've only heard that a couple of other times, but it meant that I didn't purge. 
or at least that was the way it was categorized. Wow. And so thankfully I didn't hear about that until later. So, I mean, that's the good news, but that was on my record. But what was interesting about it was just that there was no diagnosis for it. So, you know, when I went to get counseling and we talked about a lot of things, but we didn't talk about the binging specifically and the treatment, if we can call it that, was really for me to go find a sensible quote unquote diet. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that if I worked through whatever my underlying issues were, that I would be able to stick to my diet. And of course, that never worked. So by the time I got through graduate school and more training, and then I did more training in eating disorders, I started to realize that what I had been told was the best course of recovery was really the absolute opposite of what really allowed me to recover. Mm-hmm. So that was how I got started. And that was how I got really passionate about making sure that, that this eating disorder in particular is familiar to people treating eating disorders. Wow. That's really heartbreaking to hear that you went to seek help and they basically prescribed another diet, which I'm assuming was not easy at all to cope with. How was that for you? Just having so much mystery and confusion around your eating disorder at that time. I think when I, when I went to get treatment, I wasn't labeling it as an eating disorder either because I didn't know. So I was really kind of coming into it with this narrative that if, you know, I didn't have the willpower to stay on a diet and something was wrong with me, that was really the narrative that I had. So I was complicit in that story because that was the only story that I had. So I, I didn't really even understand it myself as an eating disorder. I certainly didn't understand what I was going to the food to do. Mm. what I was using food to deal with. I didn't understand that for a long time or how actually binging, given my history, made all the sense in the world. Mm -hmm. I was really going in with the story of I need to stop binging. How do I do that? Instead of binging actually saved my life in many ways. Wow. And it gave me a landing place. And in order to change that, I need to appreciate it. And I also need to figure out how to heal that relationship with food, not to prescribe another symptom, which is a diet. The other thing is that binge eating disorder is often a disorder of restriction. So we define it obviously by the name as you know the binging, but really what's true is so many folks with binge eating disorder also struggle with deprivation. So there's a lot of restriction. Restrictive eating is often part of binge eating disorder. We just don't talk about that part of it typically. But the restriction begets the binging, begets the restriction. So we get into the cycle very often that we also need to heal in order to recover. Mm -hmm. Wow. So many interesting comments made by you, especially the insightful comment that the binging actually was serving you in some way. And it took you a long time to figure that out. May I ask kind of after all your years of introspection, what were you turning to binging for to help you with? Binging is, and now we know neurologically a little bit more about what happens when people binge. But what I understood over time is that if I was depressed, I would go to food to soothe that feeling of shutdown and that feeling of hopelessness. And sometimes actually to maintain that disconnection. Mm -hmm. Because if the world just felt overwhelming, it was an escape hatch. It was a way out. But it also served to quell anxiety. 
On the other end of the emotional spectrum, I was also very, very anxious, very perfectionistic and very driven. So had that part of things going on too. So the food was a way to soothe without knowing any other way to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Also, because I was always on a diet. I started my first diet when I was, I think, 11. And so I spent much of my life hungry in the service of trying to be in a smaller body because that was what I was supposed to do. So I also was going to binging to stop from starving. Yeah. Right. So it was that too. It was deprivation and deprivation until finally I could you know, give myself permission to just eat. Mm-hmm. So it was all of those things really combined that made food actually a safe place to land when I didn't have any other psychological tools. Mm, yeah. You know, I'm just so fascinated with the idea that you were living with binge eating disorder, did not have the words for it, right? At that point, did not have a diagnosis and really just was convinced that you were, I don't know if there's a better term for this, like broken with your willpower, right? And that this dieting isn't working for you. Oh my gosh, it's sad to think that you were in that position. So at what point did you start to realize that you did have an eating disorder? Was it when you were actually training to be a therapist, when you put everything together? Actually, one of the first, and I think this is true for a lot of folks my age who started to look at binge eating disorder, the first book actually I read that addressed it at all was Janine Roth's. That was, you know, really back in the day. And some of the ways she talked about, again, that relationship with food was really revolutionary. It was a really different way of understanding it. It was a compassionate and gentle way of trying to understand why someone would binge. It wasn't punitive or shaming. So that was really stunning to me, actually, to figure out. And then the other thing was that her way of approaching it, and you know, we do things a bit differently now and think about it a little differently now, but her writing really was about instead of restriction around food to bring permission, instead of the distrust that's intrinsic in dieting, we work on developing body trust. And so that was really revolutionary to me. She wasn't calling it, I don't think at that time was labeling it binge eating disorder either. So she was calling it compulsive overeating or you know, emotional overeating, something like that. So it really didn't get the label of BED until later, actually, in my career. And before that, we started to begin to make distinctions between things like emotional overeating, which everyone does. Mm-hmm. You know, in places where food is abundant, everybody overeats sometimes due to stress or depression or whatever. That's different than having an eating disorder. So we started to make probably, I don't know, 15 or so years ago to really make a distinction between emotional overeating and binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And so that also was just part of the development of the name and the recognition of it as an eating disorder. Okay. Very interesting. Yes. I get that question all the time. There are so many people who are confused about binge eating disorder. It seems like there's a spectrum, right? Of like how much food a person might be eating and that what they consider a binge versus what someone else considers a binge. And I was wondering if you could kind of go over some of those common symptoms of binge eating disorder and how it might be different from maybe overeating. 
Sure. Let's maybe define BED first, because I think that's a huge issue is this idea of, you know, does my binging qualify, you know? Yeah. Is is it a real binge? You know, and I think, oh, it's so troubling that that's, you know, that that's kind of the question we're asking. Kind of how I think about it is what matters more than the amount in the clinical definition. And in the clinical definition, it's more than people would typically eat in a shorter amount of time than they would typically eat it. So I think it's a two hour window and eating more food in that two hour window than someone would typically eat in that two hour window. But what I find is that the more important definition of binge eating disorder diagnostically is if it feels like you can't stop yourself from eating and there's a lot of shame uh, following the behavior. I think those two things are much more important diagnostically than the amount or whether or not it's in a certain time period. Mm. So for person A, you know, eating a a meal that's just kind of quote unquote reasonable, but eating it quickly and frantically can feel very much like a binge. And for someone else, it might be what we think of as a binge, a pizza and a half a gallon of ice cream and you know, huge amounts of food. Both of those things can be a binge, mm-hmm. right? The thing is that they feel frantic and they feel impulsive. And if the person, again, feels shame following the behavior, mm-hmm. I think those are actually more important. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction there. And I think so many listeners are going to be Glad that you made that distinction because there's so much focus on the quantity of food, but really it's the emotions attached to the behaviors, what you would say is that distinction there. And that makes a lot of sense. I was once given the example of Thanksgiving, which is coming up actually in in like a month. So it's timely, but you know, that's a holiday. Everyone's encouraged to eat a lot more than usual and It doesn't mean everyone wakes up that day and has binge eating disorder. (laughs) Many don't have the emotional stress around that meal or they don't feel out of control eating that meal. That's a perfect example because, you know, lots of, lots of people will read at Thanksgiving, right? But like you're saying, they don't feel guilt or shame. I mean, maybe a passing guilt because they blew their diet, you know, that kind of thing, but it's not, it's not shame. Mm-hmm. Right. And it doesn't feel impulsive or compulsive. It doesn't feel like they can't stop themselves from doing it. It's a conscious, willful choice. Typically, there's wonderful foods. Maybe they only have those foods once a year. Maybe they only see their, you know, Aunt Susie who brings her special pumpkin pie, whatever, you know, so <laughs> they, they want to have an extra piece. You know, that is not a binge. Mm, yes. Right? Yes. Clinically, that is not a binge. Yeah, for me on Thanksgiving, it's just a joyful meal that I'm like claiming I'm going to have more today than usual because it's Thanksgiving. I got to get some of that sweet potato casserole. <laughs> and you might say afterward, oh my gosh, I probably shouldn't have had that second piece, but it was so good. <laughs> right? right. It's going to be very different than how someone who has just binged is going to feel about what's just happened. Mm -hmm. Yes. Could you dive into a little bit about that shame and what that might feel like? I'm sure it's different for everyone, but maybe for you, what was it like for you to experience that shame? And what do you see in your clients or patients who are dealing with shame from binge eating? It's horrible. I mean, I think in a nutshell, it's horrible. The cycle is so profoundly entrenched and people really feel like they cannot get out of it. And sometimes it's within the course of one day, 
Sometimes it's longer than that, but it's at the beginning of the day, you know, or Monday morning or whatever it is. There are all these stories of, I'm never going to do that again. This is different. I'm going to exercise and I'm going to quote unquote, eat healthy. And I'm going to do all the stuff I'm supposed to do. And I'm never going to do this again. And then of course, because that drive to binge is so powerful. And again, because often that relationship with food is protective. In fact, they end up binging again. And because of the restriction, they end up binging again. And then there's this flood of, oh my gosh, what is wrong with you? Why can't you get this right? Everybody else can do it. Why can't you, you know, your body is just not acceptable. It's not okay. How could you do this, you know, in this body? You know, you've got to lose weight, et cetera, et cetera. So it is a barrage of shame messaging. And of course that then here comes the, okay, I'm going to do it this time. I'm going to do it better. That's it. I'm going to change things. And it sets up the next cycle of deprivation, which leads to the next cycle of binging. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of keeps going. And over time, those cycles, people can really come to feel hopeless. Um, Shame becomes despair. Most of the time when, you know, it was true for me. And when I see people coming into my office, they have been experiencing this pattern for years or decades and have not been able to change it. And the story that they are broken, that there's something deeply flawed, um, is very entrenched. Mm -hmm. So it is a brutal, brutal part of BED. Yeah. It sounds like almost like a abusive cycle sort of with yourself. I, yeah, I had some light. Well, I've experienced binge eating for a brief period of my own recovery. Right. And there were definitely moments where I was binging and it did feel like you're just abusing your body. And I felt that cycle and it is extremely shameful to be in that place. It absolutely is. Yeah. And, you know, so many of my clients learned in one way or another that, you know, a lot of hate and shame about their body, right? And so, you know, it's acceptable to treat something that we hate badly. And Mm -hmm. I I mean, it is acceptable. I mean, that's how it feels. It feels acceptable to treat our bodies badly when we have such hate and contempt for them. Mm -hmm. Many of my clients with BED are trauma survivors. Trauma is most common with eating disorders where there's binging. And so with BED, it's the most common of any of the eating disorders. So, Many of my clients have trauma histories, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse or emotional neglect or abandonment or many different kinds of traumas. And ultimately, because of that experience, you know, they already feel so much shame Mm -hmm. just fundamentally about who they are. The ground is really fertile for body shame as well. It almost feels normal. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the big pieces of work in recovery is developing compassion and an alliance with your body. I was talking about it as we shift from our body as a billboard to our body as our home. Mm-hmm. That's really a lot of what recovery is about. So it feels less and less okay to do damage. Right. Oh, I love that. So at first, it's almost like you're giving yourself permission to damage your own body. You're okay with it. It's the norm. There's so much shame there anyway that you're just continuing the pattern of shame through the binge eating disorder. And then I just love it because then recovery is the practice of recognizing that you're worthy of treating yourself more kindly and growing out of that shame cycle is what I'm hearing. 
Absolutely. And, you know, for so many of my clients too, their body was the site of the trauma. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the part of healing that relationship with their body is a big part of healing the trauma. Yeah. So it's really allowing separation from their body as the receptacle, the holder of the shame and really releasing that so that their body gets to just be their body again. Yeah. Wow. Very powerful. That sounds like a really heavy lift as a clinician to help people heal the shame and the trauma around their bodies. How, and this is a very loaded question, but how would you approach starting to treat someone with binge eating disorder? I know that there was a point when you founded BodyWise back in the 90s, you recognized there needed to be a specific treatment for those with binge eating disorder. So what was the approach you started to create back then to help this healing process? I would say a, a big part of, you know, it's evolved over the years and, you know, yeah. as we've learned more, you know, it's certainly shifted and we have a lot more tools in that toolkit than we did when I started. But, right. but I think the biggest thing when I started was really what we were talking about earlier, which is that we have to understand that binging is not about being broken, mm-hmm. right? It's about surviving. Right. And usually for people, it gave them a way out or a way through that they didn't otherwise have. And some pretty, pretty heavy duty trauma that they were living through. Again, that's a high percentage of my folks that I see. Not everyone with BED has a significant trauma history. Sometimes it really is the result of years and years of deprivation, eating, and then, you know, binging in response to that deprivation. And so, you know, I think of that more akin to kind of like it's less severe usually. It takes less time to work through. It's as people are letting go of the diet paradigm and they're able to eat more intuitively and they're able to listen to their body's cues, the binging tends to resolve. But for most people with binge eating disorder, it's deeper than that. There's more to it. And so when I started, I think a big piece of it was recognizing that. You know, you can work on eating intuitively and getting out of the diet cycle, but for people with trauma, the binging tends to still remain. And so we have to work on dealing with the trauma. We have to work on healing the trauma and dealing with powerful emotions and really working on shame narratives. So the most important thing I think was coming from a strengths perspective, that is understanding the behavior as a way to cope, not as something that's broken about the person. Just that makes a big difference in having access to compassion. Yes. Very powerful phrase there. Just recognizing that you're not broken. This is not your fault. You did nothing wrong. And also I do find it interesting. You're right. There is that nuanced distinction there, which is there are those who are binging due to healing the restrictive cycle from chronic dieting. That's kind of what I was getting at with my binge experience. I don't think the binging was based in trauma for my story, but I can tell that there is, you know, actual binge eating disorder. There is that trauma response and coping 
found in the binge eating, which is really interesting. And I assume makes it so much harder to overcome. It really does. And the other sort of kicker too, is that, you know, for many folks, certainly not all, but for many folks who struggle with binge eating disorder, they're often in bodies that are bigger than are acceptable in our culture. Yeah. And so they also have the, essentially the trauma of weight stigma on mm. top of that. Yeah. So, right. So for many of my clients, their focus is on, I have to make this body acceptable. Mm-hmm. So how do I do that? And so often that's where we start is, you know, they're coming in with tons of body shame, you know, and the kind of, I have to stop binging so that I can make my body acceptable. Yeah. And of course that is in and of itself a trauma narrative, right? Because there's this story that your body is the problem, right? And I would argue it's not your body that's the problem. It's the shame that's the problem. It's the narrative that there's one right way to have a body, right? That there's one acceptable way to be in a body in this culture that needs challenging. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, again, we're always looking at person and environment, right? In other words, kind of what is it, where is the binging being driven by internal struggles and where is the binging being reinforced by external struggles, by the person having to live in this world. Yes. There's two multifaceted (laughs) level of uh, challenges there for sure for somebody. Uh, Before we started recording, you mentioned that there's so many misperceptions about binge eating disorder. And I'm curious if you could share more about that. Sure. Yeah. I think that piece is really important because it can stop people from getting a proper diagnosis. So probably the biggest misconception is that it really is as simple as willpower. And most of my clients have gone to see some well-meaning healthcare professional who has prescribed them a quote-unquote sensible eating plan as though that's going to resolve the issue. And it's not. Binge eating disorder is a real eating disorder. It's just as severe and just as entrenched and it requires treatment like any other eating disorder. So I think that's one of the things is that you're going to willpower away that mm-hmm. binging behavior and that's not going to work that way. So I think that's one thing. And then, you know, also I think too, when we think about that, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but that binge eating disorder is different than occasional overeating by choice or even just overeating because you're sad or upset, you know, more the emotional overeating sometimes. Maybe, you know, think about going out for, you know, pizza and ice cream and whatever, you know, drowning your sorrows in ice cream when you just had a breakup, you know, something like that. You know, we think of that as kind of a normative response. Again, people go to food to comfort and to soothe or to treat themselves if they're stressed out. That's not an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is something that happens in a regular kind of pattern. It may be episodic, but it doesn't go away. It doesn't resolve. And again, there's a lot of upset. There's a lot of shame around the behavior, a lot of anxiety around the behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's more severe. Interesting. It kind of reminds me of that narrative out there right now where people just think those with OCD are clean and tidy and they don't right. realize it's so much right. deeper than that. And so much deeper. Right. Yeah. It's emotionally so much more of a struggle than needing a clean house. That's reminding me of right now. Exactly. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also that the other thing that's kind of a misconception too, is this, that, you know, 
people who have binge eating disorder are, you know, there's all the same narratives and stereotypes that we have about people who we consider to be in bigger bodies based on this culture's judgment. So, you know, they're just lazy. They just don't want to deal with stuff. They don't care, which is absolutely inaccurate. A hundred percent inaccurate. People are desperately trying to change the behavior. That it is not changing is not their fault because they're not addressing the underlying issues. So I think that's another major misconception. Yeah. So you're saying that lazy misconception stereotype is actually getting projected into their ability to get better too. Like, Absolutely. Interesting. Okay. So they're looking at this person big picture wise and saying this person's lazy and therefore they don't have the strength to get through this or hard work to be able to do this properly. That's right. intense. That's such a harsh judgment. Yeah, it really is. And it's all predicated on weight stigma, right? That again, your body should be a certain shape and size. And if you're in control of yourself and you're you know, behaving responsibly, that you would be in a thin body. And that's just plain not accurate, right? Yeah. So when people come in and they can't stick to a diet and they're in a bigger body, what conclusion can they draw other than I'm a failure? That if I just stick to this, it will work. Well, what we know is 95% of diets end in failure, quote unquote failure, meaning that, you know, that they don't, the person goes off the diet. And of the folks who go off the diet, 75% gain back more weight than they lost. So, you know, what we know is it is a failing proposition. The best way to gain weight is to go on a diet. Yeah. Right. So, you know, we know that they do not work. If they worked, Weight Watchers wouldn't have a lifetime membership. Mm. Wouldn't need it. Right. Right. Do not work. Right. But they're sold as though they would work if you just stick to it. Yeah. It puts a myth on on you and your willpower. That's right. And somebody who has a trauma history, right, who already has a lot of self-shaming narratives, just buys that without even a question. Because, of course, it's my fault. Everything is. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's preying on people who have already been victimized. Mm -hmm. Could you explain more? And I I know this, but I think people listening might be intrigued to hear, like, why is a diet the wrong way to heal binge eating disorder? That's a great question. I think the first thing I would say is what I just said, which is that they don't work for anybody. Yeah. So, you know, whether you have an eating disorder or not, it's not going to work, eh? But it's not going to help for binge eaters either. (laughs) That's right. So that's the first reason. Second reason is that they keep the power for decision-making about what our body needs outside of our body. Mm. Right? So they reinforce the narratives of distrust, right? I can't trust my body to tell me what to do. And especially I can't trust it if it's not thin. Right? Because clearly there's something wrong if I'm not in a body that's a certain shape or size. So obviously I can't trust it. Mm. Right? That's the story. So it reinforces what many people have already learned, again, in their trauma histories, which is that I cannot trust my own perceptions. Mm -hmm. I cannot trust my own sense of reality because I feel one way, but, you know, maybe my family or whatever it is that's going on around me is telling me something else is true, right? Often clients get, you know, their feelings, their experiences are minimized or dismissed or negated in their history. So, you know, it reinforces the narrative that you can't trust your own truth. Yeah. Right. So I think those are the biggest 
you know, first of all, they just don't work. And secondly, they really keep people stuck. Yeah. I could see that continuation of not trusting your own perception of what's happening, your own judgment, you know, those family histories of people telling you how you are feeling when you're maybe feeling something completely different, right? Maybe not intentional gaslighting, but maybe a history of gaslighting in there for sure. Yeah. And, you know, usually people who are gaslit, you know, it's what they know to do. They know how to do that. So it's not right. I think it's not typically intentional. There's, you know, intention and there's impact, right? Mm -hmm. And the impact is one of being gaslit. Yeah. And then when going on a diet, it just feels so familiar if that's been your reality for your life. Right. Think about, you know, at least I know this is true for in my my lifetime, I'm hoping it's changing, but most of the people that I've known in my life, women in particular, are either on a diet or off a diet, right? Huh. But the diet is the kind of the thing around which they define their eating, Yeah, right? So they're either currently on one or currently off one but that's the defining thing as opposed to, you know, there's very few people I know who aren't in this field and work on this stuff, you know, who aren't trying to fix something quote unquote about their body, right? They just feel okay about it. That's very rare. They don't like something about it, but that's okay. Yeah. Right. If we don't like something about it, we have to fix it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and if we don't feel something's wrong with it, so often the, you know, the multi-billion dollar diet and, you know, cosmetic surgery and blah, blah, blah industry, you know, will tell you there's something wrong and offer you a solution. Yeah. Right. So it's pretty tough to be on that bleeding edge of body acceptance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Usually you have to go through the ringer to get there too. I, I feel like we got like chewed up and spit out the other side. Right. And then we're here and we're finally, we learned it the hard way, but. Thankfully, we learned it, you know, and I do find that it is a gift from recovery that people can receive is eventually you learn that body acceptance where people spend a lifetime not ever having that realization or that freedom. I feel that way too. There's certainly an approach in the eating disorder field about sort of vilifying the eating disorder, you know, kind of rejecting the eating disorder that works for some folks. That's, that's great. I've never felt that way, actually. I really felt like my eating disorder, like I said, saved me. Mm-hmm. It isn't something that I wanted to vilify. Mm-hmm. It's something toward which I actually feel gratitude. Yeah. And I think, you know, different people have different journeys. But I know just for me, that that was really true. I still feel that way. I feel the same way. I feel a lot of gratitude. Maybe in the moment, I was like, I hate this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> but once you're past it and... The dust settles and you have all these, I call them recovery superpowers, like the body acceptance, the freedom, the things that people struggle their whole lifetime to have. And then you realize there is a lot of gratitude there. And I came out of it a much more interesting, full person. The compassion levels just completely shifted for myself and for just understanding other people, being able to recognize everyone has challenges in their life. I agree. I don't think I could do this, just from my own experience, I don't think I could do this job had I not had an eating disorder. I really feel like that's been pivotal to understanding and seeing the gold, actually. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I completely agree. So everyone listening, I hope this inspires you. It gets better and you will transform. It's a transformational process and you might even feel gratitude for it one day. Yeah, it gets better. So as far as helping those who are listening today who might be living with binge eating disorder, what would you say are the first steps they can take towards healing? Like maybe they're in the the stronghold of this binge eating cycle. Where can they start to find healing in a simple way? I would say a couple of things. One is just starting with seeing how it feels if you can offer compassion to the parts of you that go to food. Mm. If you can just offer compassion and some curiosity. Mm. But one thing I find is useful, and this is not easy to do. None of this is easy. I should preface it right there. None of this is easy. But I find if we can just be curious for a moment, when you notice that impulse to go to food, see if you can just take a moment and check in and just See if you can find the part that feels driven to go to food and find out what is it hoping the food will do? What is it hoping the food will change? Mm -hmm. You don't have to change anything. Go to the food. Think you're not going to go to food after you ask that question. But I think that's very helpful just Mm -hmm. to get curious about what is this doing for me? Notice the patterns. When are you more likely to binge? Most people have patterns. Try to get curious about why those times might be the times that you're going to food to do whatever that thing is. Usually it's to soothe or escape or to treat ourselves. I also would take a look at how do you eat the rest of the time when you're not binging? How are you eating? How much attention are, how much attention is your body getting in that decision-making process, right? Are you on a diet? If you are, that's a problem, yeah. right? Right off the bat. So we have to learn how can I eat in a way that honors my body's cues. And there's a lot of good information, good resources out there about how to do that. And honestly, I think, you know, most people need help in this process because that behavior is so entrenched and it's really tough to change because the parts of us that want to go to food don't really know what else to do, right? So it's a frantic going to food So we've got to work out, what could we do instead? What do we need really? If it's not a binge, what is it? Yeah. Right? And that's really the core of therapy. Yeah. Asking yourself, what do I need in this moment instead Mm -hmm. of the food? Mm -hmm. What needs are being fulfilled by eating this food and how can they be met in another way? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And what might stop me from doing that? Yeah. Okay. So here's a question for you. If someone's mid-binge, what do you recommend? Do you you recommend them to continue and just take care of themselves afterwards? Do you have any tips for someone who's mid-binge, recognizing they don't want to be here? You know, what would you say is the best route for them to take? So I think there's a couple of things in there. One is usually one of the toughest reasons to stop a binge mid-binge is because of the onslaught of shame that is waiting. Oh, wow. A perspective. I haven't heard it verbalized in that way, but I can see that. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, as soon as you stop, here comes that part that is just going to kill you for it, right? So what I would say is if you're able, 
offer compassion for the part of you that just binged. See if you can allow that because the shame makes the next binge more likely. So see if you can ask that shame. I know that sounds a little weird or a little tough, but see if you can ask the shame just to ease back a little bit and give you some space to just have compassion for what just happened. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what I'll suggest for people is just to, you know, if they're going to binge to have, give themselves, you know, binge and pause and see if you need more. Just ask yourself the question, do I need more or could I stop now? And just see. And I find often they can actually stop sooner. Yeah. So that's kind of a harm reduction model in a way. Yeah. Which can be really valuable, especially at the beginning of treatment, or if you're just starting to work on some of the issues that might be driving the binging in the first place. Because one thing that I don't find helpful typically for people, especially where there's trauma, is like trying to stop the behaviors is the first thing to do. Yeah. That typically is not helpful. Mm. So I think what's true is you'll stop binging when you don't need it in the same way. So it should be a gentle, loving, compassionate process, not a wrenching of the behavior that doesn't work. Yeah. I see that a lot in my practice, just coaching people who have maybe binge eating disorder or patterns of binge eating. There is this black and white mentality of kind of like, I haven't had a binge in two weeks. And then there's this sudden feeling that they're cured and everything's okay now where I know, and I try to help them remember this. It doesn't mean you're fully healed, right? There's still work to be done. Why do you think that is that black and white thinking? Cause then once the binge happens, they crash and then the shame continues and it gets so difficult to motivate themselves to keep going. Black and white thinking, as we know, is really common for folks who have eating disorders, it's also really common in trauma, right? And it's protective, right? It's that part of us that wants to make sure that we get everything right in order to be safe, Mm -hmm. right? In order to be loved and accepted and okay, we've got to get absolutely everything right. And dieting reinforces that. Yeah. Right? You either get it right or you failed, right? There's a lot of reinforcement for those narratives of you're getting it right or you're not getting it right. So that's one of the big drivers is... We get those parts that say, oh, I'm getting it right. I'm doing it. I'm getting it right. And so I think a big part of this is recovery has to be gray. Yeah. And that's tough. When being a black and white thinker, which is part of perfectionism, right? Which is part of safety, right? If I get everything just right, then it'll be okay. Right? So we have to work with that energy so that we can be in the gray. Yes. Right? That was my experience too with gifts as we were talking about gifts of recovery. Learning to live in the gray was a huge gift. (laughs) Huge, huge. Because what, 99.9% of life is gray. (laughs) There's there's very little that's all good or all bad, all right or all wrong. Very little. Black and white thinking doesn't make rational sense, right? It's protective, Right? We learn it as a way to try to make ourselves what we think we're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right? So there is a way to try to keep us away from shame. That's what it's for. Right? Again, it's protective. Yes. It just doesn't work and it doesn't tell the truth. Right? Typically, we develop it young. Right? It's a, a kid develops it. It would be hard to get an adult who's never been a perfectionist to be a perfectionist. It would make no sense. 
<laughs> they would think you were nuts. <laughs> <And> they, right? <laughs> they would think that was, why would you do that? <laughs> we have to take that on. <laughs> Now I'm just imagining like somebody who's not a perfectionist being told, okay, now you have to be a perfectionist. They're like, I'm never converting to a perfectionist. No, thank you. I'm out. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. Wow. So fascinating. Well, it has really been a pleasure speaking with you today, Amy, and you've shared so much of your own story and just some knowledge and wisdom for those listening. So I really thank you for everything. And I am wondering how can people find your work? And if you have anything you'd like to promote while you're here and everyone's listening. Well, thank you. That's very kind. Actually, other podcasts I've done in my book and lots of different resources for people are all on my website, which is just thebodywiseprogram.com. So they can go and check it out. And there's information on training for professionals and other things too. So. Awesome. Well, I'm sure listeners will be checking that out. And Amy, thank you so much for everything. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Meg. It's been delightful talking with you. All right. That concludes this week's episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of the show. When you have a moment, please head on over to Instagram and follow my recovery coaching account at Meg underscore McCabe to stay up to date on everything I'm doing in recovery land. And if you're feeling extra inspired, please send me a direct message to let me know how this podcast has impacted your life. I'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you next week.